Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 26. My name is Rick. I'm author, actually co-author, of the just-released book, The Suicide Solution, uh, written with my writing partner, Dr. Daniel Amina of the Amen Clinics. And Daniel and I collaborated on a book that intends to take a different kind of look at the epidemic of anxiety, depression, and suicidality in our culture right now, the difference in that perspective is really combining uh, and the, the overlap between the best practices in clinical work right now in this arena, along with the emerging research around it, um, and the perspective Jesus brings to the table as far as engaging people in a whole living sort of way. So in what ways does Jesus already set the pattern for holistic living that overlaps with uh, what we know works to stave off the slide into deeper depression, anxiety, and suicide? So that is the focus of the book. The first part of it is, is really setting up a framework for understanding our approach to this, um, which is... Uh, using the the metaphor of a computer that has both hardware and software, and, the, and and in human beings, our hardware is our biology, our software is our soul, um, or our uh, you you could say it, it's also our identity or our self narrative. And when these two things, when there's a bug in either of these things in a physical computer, the computer either is hampered in its functioning or it can completely die. And in a human being, the same is true. If we have bugs in our hardware or our software, it can lead to dire consequences. Um, so uh, how does Jesus, uh, what is the example of Jesus that informs us about um, either how to uh, take care of ourselves in a holistic way and or help others who are struggling? So the last two thirds of the book is really a, a vast menu of possibilities of pragmatic habits and insights and understandings that will help us um, build up a bulwark towards this slide toward anxiety and depression in our lives. So I will put a link to the suicide solution on our podcast episode page. And that's uh, again, season six, episode 26, you can go to uh, SoundCloud and check that out or paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com and check it out. Uh, but I'll put a link on there and it's available everywhere. Um, it's easy to find on Amazon. So if you want to take a look, peek inside the, the covers of the book, you can do that on Amazon. So, well, gang, this is the first episode in our ongoing focus. I'm calling Jesus in the real world. So we're going to make a shift here with with the podcast. And uh, it, it, this is not just a series that we're about to launch into. It is a new focus that I'm going to continue to pursue, well, um, indefinitely. <laughs> so we're not going to really, uh, in a kind of a classic way, 
um, follow series any longer. We're simply going to be looking at Jesus through the lens of things that are actually happening around us in our culture right now. And every episode will take something different that's happening that is capturing our attention or is happening in the world right now. And we'll find the heart of Jesus by looking through the lens of that thing, whatever it is. So a heads up here about how this is going to work. Um, it won't be any surprise to those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a long time. The focus is going to uh, maintain on the heart of Jesus, not politics or ideologies or other things like that. The, our focus really always will be how do we grow to taste and see more often the goodness in the heart of Jesus? Because when we taste that goodness, we fall deeper in love with him. And the falling isn't really a falling. It's a sort of a magnetic attraction to him as, as we understand more deeply how beautiful he is then our devotion and adoration and worship naturally follows because that's what we do when we encounter beautiful things. So we're not going to get sidetracked into politics or, you know, little rabbit trails that, uh, that don't really matter. I think actually this is one of the issues the church is facing today, that it is very much drawn into rabbit trails that take us away from a focus on Jesus and who has a vested interest in taking us away from a focus on Jesus? Well, <laughs> uh, Jesus was quite clear about who's behind efforts like that. It's his enemy. And he couldn't, he couldn't be more explicit and talk more often uh, and be more blunt that the, the fact is we have an enemy whose intention is to separate us from him. And anything that is separating us from him likely has its roots um, in... Uh, broken human nature or the enemy of God, one of those two things. So the other thing is our goal here is to connect what's happening around us to the presence and priorities and practices of Jesus. So the idea is to see all of our life, not as compartmentalized into different aspects. And one of those aspects is our relationship with Jesus. It's to break down those barriers and to see that our relationship with Jesus matters in every arena of life. So this first episode, I'm going to focus on over-functioning. It's kind of a big, complex uh, word that has a big, complex meaning underneath it, but over-functioning. So when I, when I say that, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? What do you think over-functioning is, I guess, is another way of saying it. And when I ask people this question, it's interesting, the, the wide spectrum of answers about this. Um, some just think that it's, it's paying too much attention to someone else. Um, but actually the over-functioning means that in the life of another person, you transgress their boundaries and start to live the life they need to live. <laughs> you, you start to do things and say things that really are their responsibility, not yours. You, you take over more control in their life than is justified or healthy. Um, another way of saying it, I, I guess a, a popular way of saying it now is there's a, a phrase that refers to a popular uh, parenting style in today's culture, and it's called snowplow parenting, where parents go out in front of their kids to, to uh, plow away 
any obstructions or challenges in front of them to make their way easy. Well, that would be an example of overfunctioning, where a healthy person um, faces their own challenges in life and has people come alongside them to help them, but not someone who's doing it for them. That's the big distinction. Am I being helped by someone or are they doing this for me? It's, a, it's actually a, a strange and sort of sideways way of disrespecting the dignity of another person when you overfunction for them. You probably know people in your life who are overfunctioners. Maybe you're, you are the overfunctioner. <laughs> we all are at one time or another. Um, but I thought we'd explore overfunctioning uh, through the lens of something that's happening in our culture right now. And then... Um, come to understand Jesus's relationship toward overfunctioning and how, how he refused to overfunction for others and what we might learn from the way that he related to others. So uh, you've heard me talk about uh, the author, Edwin Friedman, who's a, who is a rabbi and a business consultant, and he wore lots of hats in his life, but his masterwork, um, a book that he almost finished, but didn't quite finish right before his death is called A Failure of Nerve. And uh, that, that book, that unfinished book sat around for a while until his family said, this book is brilliant. We can't let it not be published. So it was pu published posthumous, posthumously, can't even say that word correctly today. Um, and it's called A Failure of Nerve. Um, and essentially the, the book is about um, Edwin Friedman's take on healthy relationships. And he believed that overfunctioning is toxic and destructive and the chief undoing of every relational system. And so Friedman advocated instead something he calls bringing our non-anxious presence into our relationships, meaning that we, when we relate to people who are in trouble or struggling or have challenges in front of them, that we don't take on their anxiety as our own that we maintain our compassion, but that we don't sort of lift the, the challenge from the shoulders of that person and then make it our own challenge. It's our non-anxious presence, uh, Friedman says, that operates like a magnet in a relational system. So it draws out health and whole, wholeness. You could even say it draws out holiness toward it and it pushes away dysfunction. So uh, Friedman wrote a little book um, that was supposed to have been a companion to a failure of nerve. It was, it was called Friedman's Fables. I encourage you to check that out as well. I'll put links to a failure of nerve and Friedman's Fables on our, on our episode page as well. Um, but um, he wrote Friedman's Fables, just a bunch of little stories that um, teach some of the uh, truths and priorities that he was trying to get across. And one of those little stories is, is called the crux. And um, Friedman, uh, uh, that, that story in particular stands out for me amongst all those fables. And um, there actually was a, uh, a filmmaker who made a short, like six minute film out of that story. I'll put a link to that as well. It's not incredibly high quality <laughs> or else I would play you a little bit of it right now, but, um, but you can still get the gist of it. But the story of the crux is that there's a man standing alone on a bridge and he has this very thick rope attached to him and a stranger comes walking across the bridge. The stranger's in a hurry, he has this tremendous opportunity 
that um, he's under a time crunch to get to his appointment time to take advantage of this opportunity. And he encounters this lone man on the bridge with a, who's, who has a rope attached to him. And the man with the rope stops, stops the stranger and engages in conversation with him and asks him uh, eventually if he wouldn't mind holding on to the end of the rope for him. And the stranger says, well, why? And then the, then the man with the rope distracts the stranger for a second um, and then jumps over the side of the bridge, plummeting down off the side of the bridge. And the stranger suddenly realizes this rope that he's holding on to. Now he has to wrap it around himself in order to keep the man from, from falling all to his death off the bridge. And so he barely is able to brace himself against the side of the bridge and hold on to the rope, but he can tell that he's not going to be able to hold it for very long. And he can't understand why the man has just jumped off the side of the bridge. So he screams down at the man, what are you doing? Why did you do that? And the, and the, the man hanging over the side of the bridge just yells back up, um, my life is in your hands. Um, if you don't hold on to the rope, I'm going to die. So make sure you hold on to the rope. And the stranger at the top said, I can't hold on to this very long. You need to climb back up the rope. Um, and the man down below says, no, I can't. I can't climb up. Um, and the man at the top says, well, you have to, or I, the, the rope, uh, the, I, I can't, I'm not able to hold the rope. And the, again, the man down below says, well, if you don't hold on to the rope, then I'm going to die. I'm, my life is in your hands. So finally, the man at the top says, um, I can, if you wrap the rope around you repeatedly, it will help for you to pull up closer to the side of the bridge. And maybe I can grab you and get you back over. And the man down below says, no, I just can't do that. I need you to stay there and, and keep suspending me um, so that I don't fall to the rocks below. Finally, the man at the top says, I can't be responsible in the way that you are forcing responsibility onto me for your life. You have choices in front of you. I'm giving you one more chance to choose what you will do and whatever you choose, I will abide by. And the man again below says, no, no, I, there is only one choice. You have to keep holding onto the rope. And then the man at the top says, I respect your choice. And he lets go of the rope and the man falls. So that is the, the fable in the film version of this fable. They add a little uh, sequence. That's fascinating. Uh, the man at the top who's holding onto the rope, when he looks down at one point to see the man below hanging down below, he sees the image of his wife telling him that he has to come through for her, that uh, her life is in his hands and that he's responsible actually for her, for her life. And, he sees his wife telling him these things. And you can tell in the film version of this that the, the man is relating to an actual relationship in his life that feels like someone is forcing him to overfunction for her. So uh, this is a jolting story, by the way. When I show this little film to people, it's very hard to watch <laughs> because it's so counter to what we often think. And we, we normally would have compassion for someone in a dire situation like this, but in the film, what you pick up is the forced nature 
of overfunctioning and how um, how unhealthy it is. Well, let's compare this little fable and maybe what we take from it to something that's happening right now in our culture. So um, a few weeks ago, the American government decided, uh, well, it's actually months ago that the, that the American government decided this, but a few weeks ago, it came to fruition at the end of August when uh, the American military pulled its presence from Afghanistan after a 20-year war that over the length of that time cost the lives of 2,500 Americans. And as the deadline for the pullout drew closer, the Taliban who had once been in control of the country and had been basically under the radar for years, mounted offensives all over the country and quickly took back control of the country in just a shocking uh, amount of time. And though the situation was dire and there was tremendous pressure on uh, President Biden and the rest of the American government. Um, the, and when the cost of this pullout seemed just incredibly high, um, the, the president and his advisors didn't waver in their resolve. They carried through with the American military pullout. And there are people that, that don't quibble with the decision, but do very much uh, uh, quibble with the way it was done and how fast it happened and so forth and and all of the dire consequences that that resulted from this. So so Biden at the time said that the previous four presidents before him had all wanted to get out of Afghanistan, but none of them had been successful at doing that, and that he was determined not to force the next president to do the hard thing. So um, I think it's interesting to look at this decision and compare and contrast it with Friedman's fable about overfunctioning, is what President Biden did um, resisting overfunctioning um, for an Afghanistan government that was unable to fight for itself? Is that what he did? Or did he do something different than that? Was this uh, simply an uncompassionate and uh, uninformed decision to pull out no matter what the consequences were, which is it? So I thought I'd play you just a minute or two of President Biden's explanation of why he did what he did. After 20 um, years, I'm just going to play a minute or two of it. It's about four minutes long, but I'm, we're not going to listen to anything. But you'll get an idea of what his thinking process was around this. So let's take. That's it. why we're still there. We were clear-eyed about the risk. We planned for every contingency, but. I always promised the American people that I would be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. All right. Now you've heard President Biden's uh, explanation, broad explanation for why he's decided to do this. It sounds a lot like he is 
trying to avoid overfunctioning and continuing to do that. He's, it sounds like what he's saying is that um, over the course of time, our involvement in Afghanistan descended into overfunctioning, meaning we were doing things that the Afghan people and the Afghan government weren't willing to do. And then we then we're complicit in creating a environment and a relationship where we were expected to overfunction. And it sounds like what he's saying is I I'm stopping that pattern, no matter what the consequences are. And Oh yes, the consequences were worse than we thought, but I don't question the efficacy of our decision. That's, that's essentially what he's saying. So how does this decision do you think compare and contrast with Friedman's fable about overfunctioning? Are these just simply the consequences of a courageous stand against overfunctioning, or is it more like an arrogant dismissal of human suffering and need? As I said before, is which which one is it? Um, so it's an interesting comparison, um, and I think you can make a case on either side. I think I come down on the side, and again, we're not talking politics here. We're just ta taking what happened, what's happening in, um, in our present culture and, and using that as a lens. So take the politics out of this. And I, I have to say, I come down on the side that, that Biden made a decision to stop over-functioning. And, and that kind of decision, when you have an existing relationship that involves over-functioning, is necessarily going to have dire consequences when you stop doing that. The system now is used to it. And you could make a case, an honest case, I think, that it could have been done to lessen some of those consequences. Um, I think that's a legitimate point. But I think the fundamental decision that uh, we've been doing this for 20 years without success, and now we're in the untenable position of having to continue this indefinitely, because now we've helped create a system of dependency that leads to us over-functioning. So I, I think the decision itself, if you think about it broadly, does feel more like a, like a courageous stand against over-functioning than the opposite. Uh, that's how I process this, this story. So it does seem like it, it, it maps to Friedman's fable when I think about this decision. But what's important here is to explore how all of that Friedman's fable, Biden's decision, how does all of that um, compare and contrast to the way Jesus deals with people, the way he takes a stand against overfunctioning in all that he does? That's, that's what will help us to really understand what is healthy and good when we track back to the source of all good, who is Jesus. So let's focus a little bit on a couple of stories where Jesus resists overfunctioning, and let's let's take a deeper dive into what he does and why he does it. So, the first story I want to take a look at is Jesus and the man born blind, and it's from John chapter nine. We're just going to look at verses one through seven. Um, the story continues. It's actually one of the longest stories, continuous stories in all of the Gospels. So it's a fascinating story. Um, we're just going to read the tip of the iceberg here of this story in verses one through seven in, in John chapter nine. So you can crack open your Jesus-centered Bible if you have one. And if you don't have one, it's time. <laughs> Get yourself a Jesus-centered Bible. Uh, 
just uh, you can you can search anywhere and find uh, a Jesus-centered Bible. We have a hardback and four different versions of sort of a leather-like uh, cover that different colors to choose from. But it's a Bible that um, no matter where you are, because of the special features we've embedded in the Bible, uh, no matter where you're reading, it all magnetically points you back to Jesus through a variety of ways. So, so if you don't have a Jesus-centered Bible, it's a perfect time to get one. And even consider getting getting a few as Christmas gifts uh, heading into the holiday time here. So, so if you're not driving and you have your Bible handy, well, you might want to crack that open to John chapter nine. Here we go, verses one through nine. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, "Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind?" Now, that just pause there for a second. So now you're getting a worldview and an ideology from Jesus' disciples. It's common thinking. They're not even questioning whether the, the underpinnings of this thinking are wrong or not. They, they think it's on the face of it just true that someone, either the man or his parents, had, must have sinned, and that's his punishment is, is being blind. So they're essentially saying, how do we figure out who did the wrong thing? To get that? And, and because of that, this guy's paying the piper with his blindness. And so Jesus responds to this ideology and basically says, uh, none of that's true. Your ideology is completely false. So he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Wow. What? So this isn't about who sinned. This is about a man that Jesus encounters, and he's about to show the power of God and the kindness of God and the generosity of God in this man's life so that others can see the heart of God. That's essentially what he's saying. So Jesus continues, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. And this word means scent. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. So the questions we're asking here out of this story is, well, how does this story compare to Friedman's fable and Biden's decision? Uh, how, how is it like or unlike those decisions? Well, if, let's let's take a deeper dive into this. This is one of my favorite stories in scripture. And we've talked about this before about, so Jesus encounters this man who's born blind and he wants to show everyone the power of God, um, that, that the works of God could be on display in the way that he interacts with this man. Um, so it's interesting that when we think about this, uh, that... Jesus is saying that the man is blind in front of me right now, so, so that how the, the way that God works can be seen by everyone. And we always assume that what he means by that is just simply that the man has his blindness restored. But actually, Jesus also wants to point to the way that he interacts with this man around his healing. He wants to show us that this is how God works. This is how God relates. This is healthy relationship that is about to happen. So Jesus obviously recognizes that the man is blind and, and wants to see again. Um, 
and he could do he could accomplish that any any way he wants and he has before he could just say the word and the man would be seen again he could touch his eyes with his fingers he could uh, put his hand on the man's head and pray for him um, he could do anything um, but instead what he does is weird <laughs> he spits on the ground makes some mud with that saliva and then he smears it on the man's eyes there, there's no good reason to do this um, there's no practical reason to do this except for what is happening between him and this man so this man is a marginalized denigrated man who uh, barely scrapes by on the kindness of others uh, and he's been blind since birth he's never once been able to see so he has no hope of ever regaining his sight and so his life is hopeless it will always be in a place of dependence on others and he will always be live live in a vulnerable place and he will always have a diminished agency in his life because of his blindness and so jesus makes no sense why he would spit and make mud out of it and put it on this man's face just one more um, dismissive thing that happens to this man. And yet Jesus smears the mud on the man's eyes and tells him then, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, the man has lots of choices at this point, right? He can say, how dare you, so, you know, smush your spit mud on my face. How dare you, uh, you know, dismiss me or denigrate me uh, like this. Isn't this what everyone else does? He could have said, said that. Instead, the man goes on his own, blind man goes on his own and finds his way to the pool of Siloam outside of town and washes himself in the pool. And when he comes home, he can see. So think about the level of agency that Jesus is asking this man to exercise. Here's a man who has no agency other than his dependence on others. And Jesus is asking him first, um, uh, accept on the surface, on the face of it, what I've just done to you by putting mud, spit mud on your eyes, accept that, um, and then follow through by going to the pool. And if you do, um, you will see. And the man exercises his own agency. He's quite courageous and brave in what he does at this point. He ignores the apparent denigration, and he's determined to go to that pool and see what will happen. He's exercising faith in his agency, and faith is what Jesus is trying to surface. He's not doing something for him that he can partner to do with him. And this is indicative, again, of how God works in our lives. He resists doing for us what he can do with us, because he wants to respect the dignity of our own agency. He's resisting over-functioning because it's an inherently disrespectful thing to do in our relationship. And it doesn't free us from our captivity to our own passivity. So, he invites this man to leave behind his dependence and passivity. It's, it, there's a reason for that, obviously. He's blind, but he invites him to leave it behind and step into his life with courage. What's interesting that what happens after this, after the man comes home seen, is the, is the religious establishment is up in arms about this because it happened on the Sabbath, and 
and all kinds of, they have all kinds of problems with this. Um, and so they interrogate this man and they threaten him and they eventually do throw him out of the synagogue uh, for his answers to them. But this man has a boldness and a courage that is unbelievable in the face of these people who have great power. His parents are cowards. Um, they, they, they get pursued by the religious leaders as well. And they quickly say, well, this isn't up to us. Talk to our son, talk to our son. They throw their son under the bus, but the son stands. And why does he stand? Where has he found this courage? I think it in part comes from the, the way that Jesus interacted with him, which is to allow the man to express his own courage instead of having courage for him. So yes, Jesus is responsible for this man's healing, but so is the man. The man has participated in his own healing by exercising his faith. And this is where really where what the reason why the fundamental reason why Jesus refuses to overfunction in our lives is he wants us to grow in our faith. He wants us to grow in our agency. He wants us to grow up um, essentially. And we can't grow up if he's always overfunctioning for us. Of course, there are times in our life when we think, I wish you would function a little more, Jesus, <laughs> right? We've all had that. Um, and I'm not suggesting that Jesus's resistance against overfunctioning is the reason why he feels silent for, for us sometimes. There's, that's a complex question that we can tackle in another episode. But the fact that he will not overfunction for us is real. That doesn't mean that he's not eager to come alongside us, to help us, to offer us help. He says repeatedly, please come to me when you need help. But he's quite cognizant of our boundaries and the dignity of our agency. Let's read one more story. This one is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22, Jesus and the rich young man. Again, we're, we're wanting here to think about um, uh, how overfunctioning is embedded in this story and how does it compare to Friedman's fable and to the decision Biden made. So uh, starting in verse 16, Matthew chapter 19, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus looks at the man and says, well, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. And if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? The man inquired. And Jesus replied, well, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbors yourself. So Jesus just rattles off the primary commandments. And the man says, all these I have kept. And what do I still lack? Jesus answered. Again, he's studying this man and he has a love for this man. Jesus answers him, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So the man wants to be perfect. I mean, the Jesus is picking up on that. Oh, so you want perfection, huh? Well, let's see. Go sell everything. Give it all to the poor and then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So here's this moment of decision um, under normal circumstances. Um, a man who approached us like this, you know, what, what do I have to do? I've done all those things. What else do I have to do? Um, we, we would, um, our response, our typical response to somebody like that might be, wow, I don't know what else you can do. Sounds like you've done it all. 
Um, Jesus instead um, doesn't play into that narrative with this man because he loves him. And because he loves him, he tells him to sell everything he has. And, you know, by the way, you'll get treasure in heaven if you do that. And then come follow me. And when the young man hears this and goes away sad, um, Jesus does not chase after him and say, wait, 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 you know, I was, I was a little over the top with that. Come on, I, I see your heart. Um, look, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm not going to re require that you sell everything you have and give it to the poor to follow me. Just come on. I can see you're interested. So the tension when somebody uh, declines this great opportunity would be to go make it right for him, to take him out of his sadness and stress that you have just introduced to him, to take away the consequence of this choice. That's, that's where the pressure would come from. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. He watches the man walk away. And it says in this, you know, if you read on in this version, um, Jesus loved this guy and was kind of heartbroken that he was walking away, but he did not allow his heartbroken feelings to step in and fix it for the man. In fact, I love this story because I just wonder what happens to this man. I have a sneaking feeling about this man that what Jesus does here just wheedles away at him. He can't stop thinking about it. And I have a feeling that eventually this guy comes back to re-engage Jesus at some point. Um, maybe that's my wishful thinking, but um, what Jesus does here is upend his narrative and asks him to reconsider perfection as his self-willed goal. And because always Jesus is going to invite attachment and abiding over our try harder to get better strategies because those things will kill us. We'll never reach perfection and we'll die trying, um, sometimes literally. <laughs> um, so Jesus understands the toxic nature of self-righteousness and our efforts to become perfect. And instead, what he wants us to do is lay down that pursuit and simply attach to him who is the source of all life. And uh, so this is what he does for this man. It's a kind thing he does for him. And in that kindness comes a hard edge, meaning he lets him walk away to chew on the consequences of his choice. Um, it's a brave thing that Jesus does, but he does this sort of brave thing all the time because the temptation, of course, is to now over-function for the guy, to, to take away the pain of his choice uh, from him because it's painful. <laughs> so why does Jesus, why is he so determined to resist over-functioning? It's because he loves us. <laughs> he loves us and gives, offers us the dignity that we desperately need by not choosing for us or forcing us into, into things or functioning for us when we are perfectly capable of functioning for ourselves, hard as it may be. And what is the fruit from all of this? The fruit of it we see this particularly in the man born blind, the fruit is a changed and healed and decaptivated life, a life that he can live more fully into himself because he's, he's functioning for himself, which after all is what Jesus wants for us. And it's what parents, if they really could stand back and think about this for a minute, they want, we all want fully functioning kids. We're able to go into adulthood and face into lean into the challenges that are sure to come, but 
they'll never have the strength inside to do that if we're always over-functioning for them. We're actually harming them in a profound way by taking away hardship from them, by clearing out the obstacles in front of them, we're harming them. Um, that's, by the way, the, the, the focus of a book, a great book from 15 years ago or so called Wimp Nation. I'll put a link to that book too on our podcast episode page. It's a powerful book about how our parenting style with young people um, essentially comes back to bite them as they move into adulthood. Um, and, and Jesus would be in whole agreement with that. He does not want to overfunction because he is love itself. So, so um, does this mean to, to wrap up here? To, does this mean then that we should not approach Jesus for help when we need help? Well, of course not. So uh, the, Jesus lives in the tension between he invites us to come to him no matter what it is and ask for help, but also to trust him when he decides not to overfunction for us in the midst of that help. So he tells this, one of my favorite parables in scripture about the man who um, has some unexpected house guests come late at night and he doesn't have any bread to serve them. And so the man goes to knocks on a friend's door, but his friend is already in bed asleep and he doesn't want to get up to go down and get some bread for, for his friend. And he just resists and refuses over and over again. But the man just keeps knocking at the door until frustrated, the man comes down from his bed and opens the door and gives him a loaf of bread. And in the parable, you know, this is the hard, weird, hard part of the parable. In the parable, Jesus is the man in bed. And we are the ones knocking on the door. And he's essentially with a smile on his face, um, asking us to, to shamelessly persist is the word that Jesus use, uses. Shamelessly persist in our knocking. Um, and because he wants the kind of relationship with us that we feel free to shamelessly persist around. So he is not telling us, don't ask for help. He is actually inviting us to shamelessly persist with him. But he, at the same time, he will not undermine our dignity and our agency by overfunctioning for us in the midst of our request for help. He will be with us, but he'll be with us in a profoundly respectful way. Well, gang, there you have it. This was... Uh, Season six, episode 26 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. You can um, get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, by the way. Uh, we publish it on SoundCloud, and that's where you can that's where you can find the description of the podcast and links, helpful links um, to it as well. So a lot of you uh, are are listening to this over SoundCloud. If you want to see the links that I've talked about on here, just look at the just click on the episode and you'll you'll find them there. And uh, Again, we'll we'll uh, record a new episode of Jesus in the uh, Jesus in the Real World um, in a week or two. Uh, I thank you again for your patience as I try to get back eventually to an every week schedule with this podcast. But for now, um, what I'm able to do is about every other week. So we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks again for being a part of this community. We'll see you next time.